Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and as always, you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. A few days ago, I spoke to Cody Townsend about his very ambitious new project called The 50 Project. The 50 Project is Cody's attempt to ski all 50 of the lines included in the book, 50 Classic Ski Descents of North America. Cody and I discuss how one even begins to go about trying to plan a project like this, how it's going so far, what he hopes to accomplish by showing the behind the scenes aspects of each of these backcountry missions, which lines are, in his view, the most daunting, what skis, boots, bindings, and safety gear he's using for these ascents and descents, and more. And when I spoke to Cody, he had just completed what fellow Solomon athlete Chris Rubens described as a very involved day. So we're going to get the fresh details here from Cody about their ascent and descent of Mount Curry in Pemberton, British Columbia. Before we get started, I want to quickly remind you that our second installment of the Blister Speaker Series will be happening live at Western Colorado University in Gunnison, Colorado at 6 p.m. on Thursday, February 28th, and you all are invited to this free event. Our guest this time around will be Eric Larson, who himself knows a thing or two about ambitious projects and extremely tricky logistics. Eric is a polar adventurer, expedition guide, dog musher, and climate educator, and he has spent the past 15 years of his life traveling in some of the most remote and wild places on Earth. He is also the first person in history to have completed expeditions to the North Pole, the South Pole, and the summit of Mount Everest in a 365-day period. This is going to be a fantastic evening with Eric at Western, So come join us in Gunnison, Colorado on February 28th at 6 p.m. And for more information about the Blister Speaker Series at Western, including upcoming guests, just type in Blister Speaker Series at Western into your favorite search bar and mission accomplished. And now let's go ahead and get to my conversation about the 50 Project with Cody Townsend. Cody Townsend, how are you today and where are you today? I am doing great, although I'm a little tired, a little punched from <laughs> yesterday because I'm up in Pemberton, British Columbia right now, a place I've spent a lot of time, but finally got to climb and ski a mountain I've been looking at for a really long time, never been on top of it, and finally made it to the top yesterday. Well, that is excellent, and we're going to definitely talk a bit more about yesterday's mission here in a minute, but... For those who might not know, why don't we just start with what is this 50 project that you've got going? Well, essentially, it's at its basis, a project to try and climb and ski all the lines chronicled in the book, the 50 classic descents of North America, which is a coffee table book made by Chris Davenport, Penn Newhard, and Art Burroughs. And it's about a decade old now. And it's just this like classic coffee table book where you just look at amazing photos and read little blurbs and just like looking at amazing lines and mountains all over North America. And um, that was essentially the basis for this entire project was that 
I just kept looking at that book and kept thinking like, man, I would like to ski one that line this year, one of these days. And then, you know, it started kind of with one line of just like, I, that's on my bucket list. I got to ski that or try to ski that. And then over the years, it just kept growing and growing. And I just kept finding myself more and more attracted to all the, all these lines. And I was finally just was like, well, you should just try and ski all of them. <laughs> Why not? And uh, so all of a sudden, I kind of just committed to that. And uh, it's been, I would say, two years in the making. I've kept it dead quiet, super secret, um, just because I didn't know if I could commit to it. And in those two years of uh, figuring it out, it was a lot of figuring out is this doable? Could I potentially do this? Um, and then probably a year figuring out the the media component and the uh, financial component and all that kind of stuff. So on January 16th, I released episode one where I pretty much told the world that this is what I'm going to be doing for the next three years. And this is going to be the project that I'm going to be focused on 100%. And um, yeah, kind of committed myself. Okay. And that, so this is something that you are looking to do over the next three years. I guess I wasn't totally sure on what the intended timeline was to try to complete these 50. Yeah, I, I gave myself three years. Um, the three years is kind of just, it's almost the minimum amount of time I could potentially do it in. And in, in order to do it in three years, it's going to take a lot of luck, um, a lot of things happening favorably. Um, I think it's not doable in any shorter time frame, but I also think it could be 10 years to actually do this. But I'm going to try to do it in three years and see what happens. How, how serious are you about that? You just said this might actually take 10 years. Um. I don't know. I think I'm going to find out when I get there. I think there, you know, like I think it could be this type of thing. If I, I, I'm going to give it this really healthy try over the next three years. And if it doesn't happen and for some reason I'm, I, I attempted every line maybe multiple times and all of a sudden I get to a point where I'm like, no, then I know that it's going to be in my own heart and my own decision making that makes me not want to complete it. Or it could be one of those things where you're like, man, I didn't get it done in three, but that line that is missing, those one or two that just couldn't get, perhaps like I just uh, give it a go and wait out a window and just know exactly when the time frame is to get it and go do it. Um, you know, well, like I said, I kind of, I'll kind of see when the when that card unfolds, like flips over to make a decision from there. So. As you've been sitting and looking at these 50 lines and, you know, gotten a lot more serious about this in the last two years, obviously this is a question that is wildly contingent on conditions. But as you're trying to size up these 50 lines from afar, which one or two at the moment seem to you to be the most daunting? Yeah. So I've broken down the lines in terms of kind of difficulty factor for all of them. And the way I break it down is there's actually 30 relatively easy lines. You just kind of 
need not bad avi conditions and you're fine they're good to go like a lot of people could ski them and then i look at about 10 lines that are a little bit more difficult um you need a few more things to line up and then seven lines that are like quite difficult um they're more on the extreme side of of the you know table when it comes to needing the right mindset, the right physical state, and the right conditions. And then I look at three that are just full cruxes. Um, these three cruxes to me are University Peak in Alaska, uh, the Mira Face on Mount St. Elias, and uh, the North Face of Robson. And those three are kind of the cruxes, mainly just because you need to get really lucky with the conditions. Um, all, all those three have been skied very rarely, like once if twice on all of them. Um, and they have different factors to them in that like university, you need like the perfect snow to plaster this 8,000 foot wall that's like generally filled with ice. So you need snow to stick to ice for 7,000 vertical feet. Um, and many people have gone up there and attempted it and very few people have skied it. It's also one of the most physically daunting kind of challenges along the way being it's a 8,000 foot boot pack straight up a massive face. Um, well, Mount St. Elias, uh, the Mira face has only been skied once and it's mainly because a lot of people don't try but a lot of people don't try because you have to be prepared to get your ass handed to you by weather for a month on one of the most extreme weather environments in the world, me and Mount St. Elias. Like everyone I've talked to that's been to Mount St. Elias is like, oh boy, be prepared to get your ass handed to you and be prepared to sit in your tent for a month digging, surviving, and then it finally getting a break in the weather and not just like tucking your tail behind between your legs and going home, but like go climb it and then ski it. Like the mental capacity on that one and the mental fortitude on that one is uh, 10 out of 10 <laughs> in terms of difficulty. And then Robson is, you know, it's a massive peak. It's pretty deep and you need perfect conditions, conditions that don't come in very often. I'll just need really, really good timing and a lot of time spent there to make it happen. So those three are the cruxes. It's not to say though, you know, there's a few sleepers in there as well that kind of, you got to be on it and in terms of conditions and timing. So um, yeah, there's, you know, I would say there's 10 that are very, that are on the very difficult side. (laughs) Spicy. Yeah, they're (laughs) spicy for sure. You know, but that's the thing is I looked at it as they're spicy, but if they're in the right conditions, they're completely within my realm. Like I've skied stuff as steep, if not steeper in times. Um, I've skied big stuff at altitude. I've, you know, like climbed big stuff. You're like, I, it's doable, but it's just got to be the right conditions. And I think that's, it's kind of the amazing thing about this. I mean, you can sit here and say these look like the 10 hardest and you can, I mean, th- this you know very well, but, uh, you know, it's like, look, you're, you're the second episode, right, on Superior, which, I mean, just looked like it lined up incredibly well. But, you know, in the right conditions, Superior can be no joke in and of itself. It, you just, it's just such an unknown. 
you know, every single time up. And I think that's what's going to be so interesting to follow you along on this project, because the ones that maybe seem like it's going to be chill could certainly become not chill. It really is kind of seems like this is underscore all caps, the word adventure. Yeah. And I look at it and it's already been a hell of an adventure. And I look and that's what I'm trying to like frame it as is it's not to me, it's not uh, this tick list and I need to just check these off. Like, yeah, that's part of it. And that's like what seems like from the outside. But for me, it's this like grand adventure. And every single line is it's an adventure in itself and a process of learning the the mountain and spending time on trying to crack the code. And yeah, as you saw in Superior, you know, that's a, that's a line I've skied a ton. And I kind of figured as like, uh, I'll just do it at any moment. And that's why I started off with it early because I was like, I just go get that one. And all of a sudden we show up and you're like, oh, this is a little more difficult than I thought because there's horrible avi conditions. And luckily we ended up timing it well and got uh, got it in stable conditions and got it in just about the most epic conditions you could ever ski superior in. Now, it was amazing. Like, Having been on top of that and just seeing what you got, I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, and you guys all did too. Um, I, you know, I think the word all time was used uh, several times and, and that seemed like the right word. Yeah, like I had people saying like, people have been waiting their life to ski it in those sort of conditions. And you guys just showed up and skied it with nobody else on that day and skied it in like thigh deep blower pal. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, wow, thank you. The gods were on our side that day. For sure. Uh, people should, they can go follow these episodes and talk a little bit about this. Where can they find these? What is the rollout going to look like? You know, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, the main place where you can find this is my personal YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Cody Townsend slash C. And uh, I just rebranded it to be the 50 project because I just kind of wanted it to live in one little place and figure it's kind of my project. So I'll just base it around myself, I guess. And then, um, you know, I've been posting about it on social media uh, at Cody Townsend on Instagram. And then I also have um, an Instagram account that's doing a lot more behind the scenes stuff for uh, the 50 project. And that's at the 50 project with periods in between the 50 and project. And those are the main channels I'm going out with. Um, just kind of keeping it simple and keeping it focused, but it's already been doing super well, um, better than I actually could have thought. Um, the media has really taken to it as well, which I kind of knew was going to happen. You know, it's a, a list and a number and this goal in mind. So media loves those kind of things. <laughs> um, so those are kind of the, the pl- places where I, I put it out and um, just kind of, yeah, putting it, putting it out to the world, direct to the people. Um, my whole goal with this project, when I came up with the media side of it was I want to take the audience along for the ride. I want to bring them along the adventure. So because it's so intricate, because there's so many decisions along the way, so many people I'm going to be meeting and skiing with, I really wanted to do a media project that like brings them along for the ride, makes them feel like they were there instead of just this like highly produced, highly polished product. that's kind of like glorifies it, make it hero kind of worship. I was like, no, I want it to be real. 
as I pitched it out to sponsors and to, you know, the um, filmmakers I'm going to work with and editors, I was like, my number, the word I kept using or the word string I kept using was proximity to reality. Like I wanted to be as close to what the real thing as possible. We show everything, all the bullshit in between, all the decision-making, all the struggles, all the, the comedic moments, everything. And then the skiing at the end, like, ultimately like the the episodes themselves are are only going to be like 20% skiing i want it 80% everything else which is what we call backcountry skiing right yeah totally that's a really good uh, way to frame it it is you spend 80% of your day getting out and getting to the top for a five minute run. And, you know, if you had a media project that was all based around that five minute run, and I don't know, it wouldn't be that interesting. You're like, oh, he skied another Coulard. Oh, he skied another Coulard. <laughs> but when you break down everything else, then it makes, uh, you know, makes it far more interesting and, um, you know, brings people in on the process of how to make these decisions and how we're, how we're, um, getting up these lines and what makes them special. And then the people that I meet along the way, what's, what's cool about them? Why, you know, why are they special? So, um, yeah, it's pretty, it's been really fun so far. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, and I think already, even from that superior episode, you know, I, I kept thinking about it from the point of view that backcountry ski equipment and, and splitboarding equipment is certainly on the rise, I just thought that this is going to be just a super good educational tool in the sense of, you know, we get hit up all the time by people writing in to say, hey, um, you know, my friends are pushing me to get backcountry equipment or I'm thinking about getting into this. And I think a series like this that, you know, actually shows people digging snow pits and, you know, shows you on Superior, nope. Couldn't go those two days, you know, had to wait a couple more. It's like, guys, this is what it is. And I think that um, that's just useful. We need a bit more of that in the world right now, I think, rather than just this idea that you walk into some shop, buy a pair of skins, you know, and you're kind of on your way. So I, I think I, I really appreciated that kind of real world element to it. And I think that's just going to help people be like, oh, that's what it means to go walk up mountains and ski down them. For sure. No, it, I, I was noticing that in ski movies, everyone loves and craves kind of the behind the scenes moment. And this whole entire process is, and media project is based on the behind the scenes moment. So you see that we as pro skiers aren't just like superheroes that just go send it no matter what. You see that like, no, we're waiting weeks and months for these lines. And so, you know, to see the decision making that people that are experts and spend all their time in the in the backcountry and spend their time trying to tag big massive lines of consequence you'll see the process that goes into it and hopefully gives people insight into yeah you don't just read the avalanche report rose look at it being like oh it's considerable cool let's go you you see everything else that goes into it you're like oh no they're they're factoring in every little detail uh, of their day and uh, their approach and their way down uh, into making it home at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. A second thing that I've really enjoyed so far, just in the first two videos, is it really drives home for me again, maybe the best thing about 
backcountry skiing, which is just the opportunity to be out in the mountains with people you really like and trust. You know, as, as we've said, the skiing part is actually a tiny portion of the day, but getting to just go out with, with good people and try to make good decisions and laugh a lot and the rest, that in and of itself was just like, this, this is great. This is, this is the really good stuff, you know? Who knows what the snow is going to be like half the time or how good the actual skiing is, but being out with good people, that gets to be kind of a constant. And I think that's going to be a really fun thing to watch, you know, for the, for the duration of this series. For sure. No, I mean, one of my, my goals in this, in the whole project was like, I really want to link up with locals, local pros, local heroes, underground legends, people that give this zone character. Um, One, because on a selfish reason, they help you get to the top. They know the mountains, they know the snowpack, they know everything. So it's like one of these things, like it's actually safer to be going with these locals that understand these mountains. But then two, it's like, there's these underground badasses that have been doing rad stuff all around, you know, their home region for years that have never gotten a single ounce of credit. And I want to be able to like highlight some of those people and bring it to, to the forefront of being like, yeah, these guys are badasses. They just, they don't have, you know, they only have a thousand Instagram followers, but they're as badass as anyone comes. So I want to go ski with them and show them. And then too, I think it, adds like characters to the to the show not just like if it was just me solo skiing all these the show would get really boring really quickly i'm not that entertaining of a person and to show the um interactions that we have and the um the banter and the decision making with these people i think we'll just uh you know lend a a a sense of of place a sense of of character and just truly like make the whole show much more interesting. And then, like I said, on a selfish reason, it just really helps to to have people that know the zone. Like yesterday I went with uh, out with John Johnston. 99% of people outside of Pemberton, British Columbia have no idea who he is, yet he around here is a hero and is known as like tackling all the big lines around here and knowing these mountains like a back of his hand and just a guy that's a genuine badass. So we got to go ski with him and it'd been 15 years since I skied with him. He's not like a film skier. He's just a guy that just goes, ticks off huge lines with him and his buddies. So, you know, it's like we got to go climb and ski this big line mainly because of his expertise and his knowledge. So it's, uh, you know, I feel really lucky and fortunate that we get to do that. Let's talk a little bit more about yesterday's mission i i was laughing this morning checking out chris rubens's instagram stories yep uh where he described the uh, the day as quote a very involved day and i thought that was great <laughs> the other thing i loved he said about the route choice you guys made he said quote overall i wouldn't recommend it <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, so can you say a little bit more? I mean, I don't mean to step on the toes of the episode coming out, but uh, if you're willing to pull the curtain back a little bit on on what you were up to, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, so we went up and climbed and skied Mount Curry, which is a mount, mountain I've looked at for a decade. I've spent a lot of time up in Pemberton, but all sled skiing, maybe heli skiing to film 
for MSP and various production companies, but you're staring at Mount Curry from the town of Pemberton every day. And we don't go film there because it's just big, giant Pular skiing or huge face skiing that doesn't really lend itself too well to filmmaking. So I've always wanted to go up there. The challenge with it is most people heli ski it. And I set off on this thing to climb and ski everything because I think it's not necessarily for this like, oh, it's more real way, but it's like more because like, I feel like it adds a certain challenge to it that I really enjoy. Um, just to get dropped off on the top of Curry and ski the line would be quite easy um, to climb it. That adds a whole different factor. So it's about to the top of the line, a 7,000 foot climb straight from the valley. But what we did yesterday was the cornices have grown pretty large on top of our lines. And although avalanche danger was low, um, it was actually moderate for the Alpine. And we were seeing reports and talking to people that the potential for pockets to pull was kind of high and just a small pocket, but in a big, steep couloir, that small pocket can be very consequential. So we decided to climb a route that's never been climbed before, which had no overhead hazard um, for us, but was a very indirect route as opposed to going straight up the face and straight up the couloir. Um, and we would pretty much last minute decision. We're like, let's go this safe way. And we went and scouted it like at dusk the more, the night before we were going. And we're like, we think that goes. Let's try. And it almost didn't go. It was a, a mixed bag of like crossing crazy avalanche paths that were stabilized and it rained, but it was like icy as hell. So you're switching from skins to ski crampons to foot crampons and back and forth and over again. And then we got to this one little zone and all of a sudden had like we got blocked out by cliffs. We're all of a sudden looking at having to rock climb stuff. And uh, we found a route through and we pretty much tree climbed up pillow lines and bushwhacked our way and tunneled our way up about 2000 vertical feet of just horrible boot packing and horrible climbing but made it to the ridge line and then we were able to skin from there. Um, you know, we thought it was going to be maybe a three hour climb to the ridge line. It was six hours. So although, yeah, I wouldn't recommend it because it's not a clean route. What it was, was we traded, we traded safety for kind of an adventure and a hardship. And it was more the thing you're like, I would rather be, 100% safe with no overhead hazard and hack my way up there and figure out how to get it through it and know that nothing's going to come down on top of me um, and be safe and then ski the couloir top down as opposed to skiing from the bottom up. So um, it ended up working out. Yeah, we were absolutely punched by the time we got to the top. It took us, I think, 11 hours to finally drop in. I think it was 13 and a half hours car to car. Um, someone recorded the stats. I think it was 13 kilometers and 7,300 feet of climbing. So it was a big one. Um, it was a suffer, but well worth it. And I, 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 like I said, any I'll trade safety for hardship and struggle any day. So um, we, we took the safe route. And it was just a bit harder of a route. 
So today is a down day for you. I mean, are you just sitting around in pajamas right now, barely moving? Um, or are you already like using today to kind of figure out the next thing? What's the everyday look like here? It's a little bit of both, what you just said. I'm sitting around in my sweatpants, but trying to figure out the next move. Um, I've got a little bit of window of stability and weather, so um, potentially might ski another big line tomorrow. Um, but trying to figure figure it out. But um, luckily, I'm not as I was absolutely punched yesterday. I'm not quite as bad today. Like I could totally go for a big tour today and be fine. I think. Uh, fitness level is coming up with all these climbs, which is really nice. And, uh, I think, um, yeah, I kind of have to remain on it and I, I have to take advantage of stability windows because those stability windows might shut down for two weeks. So if I've got it, I'm going to go try and send it and, uh, yeah, I'll get rest. I'll, I'll rest when I, when I can. To what extent have you, you know, attempted to plot out a kind of chronology for these 50 as opposed to, you know, yesterday you, you hit another one and now you are, you know, you're in BC. So you're like, okay, we've got one, two or three possibilities that might go for the next. I mean, does it even make sense to try to do this chronologically um, given all the variables and the rest? The way I broke it down was, um, I have two strategies to hitting these lines and I kind of chronicled them out as that what lines are potentially doable in January being early season, usually lots of instability and cold snow, a lot of facets and things like that. So, but what lines if given will tend to be stable and skiable in January. And then the same goes for February and then the same goes for March, April and May. So a majority of the lines are definitely the most skiable in April. Um, that's when a lot of ski mountaineering objectives start to come into play. So I can't really stack all of them into April, though, because, you know, all of a sudden you're like, cool, I got to tick off 16 lines in uh, 30 days and not really physically uh, possible even with with travel time and you know physical capabilities um, though it will get pretty stacked by April so I, I kind of did this month out list and like luckily it's kind of working out so far um, I kind of thought um, you know spending a lot of time in BC that February is a good month um, for things the cornices aren't huge there's snow down to the valley so it's kind of a good time and uh, right now it is, it's working out. And then from there, my other goal and strategy is to try and tick off hard lines as early as possible. So if I have a chance at a hard, harder line early, I will drive really far to go tick it off because the more I give myself easy lines on the back end, the more I can just, you know, pull that card when that card needs to get pulled being like, oh yeah, like if it was a Mount Superior, you're like, yeah, I can kind of do that anytime. And, you know, we're, we're a little behind right now. So let's go tick off some of the easier ones. So um, there's some lines coming into form right now that don't come in um, that I'm keeping my eye on as well. And they're on the harder end. So, you know, it's just kind of keeping my eyes open and um, checking essentially stability around the entire North American region. And I, 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 
as I say to people, I'm not chasing weather like I used to. I used to chase storms and then blue holes after storms. Now I'm just chasing stability. Um, I like pretty much reading trends for regions and what their avalanche conditions are like. I love how you just put that. I used to chase snow. Now I chase stability, basically. And I think there probably are still a whole lot of people who might kind of think of you first and foremost as like a big mountain powder skier. And here you are doing this serious ski mountaineering stuff. And I, I guess I'm curious to, as you think back over your career and just kind of your life, whether you see this as just a kind of steady evolution or if there were a couple specific points in time where this trajectory really took a left? Yeah, I would say it's a combination of those factors. You know, I think that there is this kind of uh, general trend among big mountain skiers and big mountain free riders and whatnot to kind of start to move more into a trajectory of ski mountaineering. Um, I think it's just kind of a natural evolution of spending time in the mountains of going from helicopter and snowmobile access to human access and skiing steep, big lines. I think it's just kind of the process that happens naturally for a lot of people. But then for me personally, I would say what I started to lose an inspiration for um, being a big mountain freeride skier. I just started to gain for, you know, the appreciation and understanding of this style of skiing. Um, you know, I'd been skiing uh, one certain way with one kind of certain goal, which was skiing big lines fast and jumping big cliffs in perfect snow conditions, doing big backflips and then and whatnot, just a typical free ride film skiing for 15 years. And I started to lose the challenge in it. It started to seem routine for me. Um, I, I noticed I would stop being scared of staring at a 50 foot cliff and backflipping it. I'd be on top going like, okay, here we go. And it would just, it started to feel routine. And then I just started to, um, you know, it was actually in 2015, um, after, you know, days of my youth came out and you know, I won a bunch of awards and was like at the top of that game. And, I went on one trip the next year, actually two trips, one to Svalbard, where it was an expedition style for the, the Solomon video Eclipse, where we camped out in minus 20 to minus 50 degree temps for two weeks. And it was like an incredible trip. The, the challenge of just surviving out there was unbelievable. And then I did kind of my first true ski mountaineering trip up in Northern BC for this movie I produced called Conquering the Useless. And I would say we climbed and skied this insanely huge, steep, amazing line. Um, it was like a first ascent, first descent of this like massive mountain with this perfect huge wall. And I was scared out of my mind at the bottom of it. We got to the top after like three hours of some of the scariest climbing in my life I'd done at that point. Remember I got to the top and I was like, man, like, I got to get back down this thing. Like there's no helicopter to pick me off. Uh, like I got to get down and ski down to get home and skied down it. And it was just like an overwhelming 
experience. I was like that. I said it in the film and I didn't know it entirely to be true, but I was like, I think that was a life-changing moment. And I really think it was because I've now seen how, how like involved and complex and rewarding, um, the processes of climbing and skiing big lines. It's not just like, like wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, that we kind of do out of helicopters, which is go tick off seven big lines in a day and go to the next one. You ski the line of your life and you get down to the bottom and you're like, cool, where are we going next? And you're like, man, I just want to like process this. That was amazing. And now you, you spend weeks on end for one line and you just, oh, the sense of, of place and purpose and feeling you get from it is just incredible. Um, doing this, this whole entire massive project because of that. <laughs> I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And that's really well said. And I think that's very interesting. Like thinking about a lot of your career has been spent like banging dream lines. And it's like, well, now you get to slow the whole process down. You have to necessarily. I th that's a really interesting perspective that I don't think I've really considered before. You know, it's kind of savoring as opposed to... Uh, I don't know, drinking from the beer funnel or something, you know, too much to take in and process. Yeah, it's like sipping on a fine scotch versus taking a beer funnel, like you said. <laughs> both fun, both great. Can't say one is better than the other because um, they have their own purposes. And like, I, like the, to me, I will never say like, oh, climbing and skiing lines is the way. It's the only true way because it's not. Like, it's a way. And that's the beauty of skiing is like, I find there's so many unique ways to approach this sport and unique ways to have fun and, and within it that it's like, there's no best way to do it. Um, for a decade for me, there was a best way to do it. I hated climbing and skiing lines. I thought it was stupid and a waste of time. And now I'm like, I really like climbing and skiing lines and I'm more challenged by it than I was, um, you know, skiing out of helicopters before. So it's just like, to me, it's like, that's the beauty of this sport is it's so, so varied and so cool and so many different unique ways to approach it. So right now, this is kind of what's giving me the most enjoyment. And um, I'm really, really, really enjoying the process. You want to talk about gear for a minute here? I definitely want to talk about gear. <laughs> <laughs> so as you are putting together all these different lines, I'm you know, I know some of the equipment that is that tends to be a staple for you, but I'm curious over these 50 lines, how much you think you will continue to pull this stuff off on the same, say, skis, boots, and bindings, or how much variety might get introduced depending on the specific mission? Yeah, for me, it's a lot about variety. Um, and I think it just is always going to depend on the objective, the distance to the objective, the height of the objective, and the potential snow conditions I'm going to encounter 
and then how I want to ski that. So for a superior, um, it's maybe a 3000 foot climb. It's not big. I did it on mountain lab boots. Um, like my custom modded ones too at that, that are very high performance shift bindings and QST 118s and 192s. Like essentially the setup I hundred percent filmed on all last year, um, for filming for ski movies. So things like that, where I want to ski fast, I want to like, uh, charge it. I want, I, I want downhill performance. Um, I'll be on that kind of setup. So there's a few lines in here that are going to be very like almost as if my everyday gear that I ski in a resort. But then as we get into bigger and bigger objectives, things that take speed on the way up, then I'll start to get into kind of gear I've never used before. Um, not you I've used, but not like in a, in a, a way that people are used to me. So more like ski mo boots being the Solomon X out boots. Um, I started skiing in those last year and I'm just blown away about the uphill performance of them. And they, they can get down fine enough for me. Um, I can't charge by any means, but I can get down well enough, make hop turns and, and feel good getting down and then be on skis that are, lightweight and thin um compared to my general setup so like the mtn skis that solomon makes like the uh, mountain explorer uh kind of ski i'll end up being on oh I'll, I'll probably never go to the the s lab line of ski being <laughs> there the, the rondo skis i I, oh. uh, I, mean, I would love it one one just one line on those just one, your choice yeah, of the 50. <laughs> well, my goal is to get Killian Jornet on one of these episodes. And oh I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. He's a busy guy and he likes, he doesn't like to sit down on a plane for very often. He doesn't come to North America very often, but I so desperately want him to come. And my whole goal is to, I do it on his setup and he does it in my setup. <laughs> So I go like Rondo tights and uh, S-Lab skis. <laughs> that would be amazing. This needs to happen. Yeah. Oh, I want it to happen so bad. Um, but I, I think I think I'm still too big of a guy for S-Lab skis, but I'll, I'll, I'll try. Um, so and then like, you know, I've been starting to, you know, like big line, like Mount Curry, which, you know, big climb, very involved. You got to have a lot of extra equipment like ropes and whatnot. You say you have a heavy pack and then I'm definitely trying to pare down weight. So, but it's still like I was on a new ski that I'm not obliged to talk about um, at this moment from Solomon, but um, it was a 186. So I generally ski 190 and above and I went to a little bit shorter. It's a little bit narrower than my normal setup. Um, I use the MTN tech binding and then my normal MTN boots. So, you know, it's, I, it's still, uh, involved enough ski where I want to have, uh, equipment I trust on the way down, but I try to pare down a weight a little bit for the big way up. Um, and then as I, like I said, I need to, there's certain lines that's going to be speed on the way up is very important. Then I'm going to pare it down quite a lot. Um, but you, you won't see me in full, full Rondo schemo gear. That's for sure. Just cause I'm not that kind of guy. I still like to ski down in a certain sort of way that I'm very used to. So, um, it, it really, it's going to be line dependent. And right now I'm traveling with four pairs of skis and we'll see, see every line kind of 
will dictate what I what I pull out. Yep. Let's talk a little bit maybe about a couple pieces of safety equipment, things you're getting used to or playing with or um, that are staples already. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I safety's always been a big priority. And while we're out filming, I generally have three levels of safety and I'm continuing with that. Um, these are three levels of rescue. So essentially first is a cell phone. Everyone has it because they're going to take photos and whatnot, but occasionally you can get some cell service and that's a very quick way to reach people. But then if I don't have, can't use a cell phone, then I carry UHF, VHF radios. Um, and before I go out, I will program in or write down in my notebook um, radio channels of heli operations, um, the any sort of rescue service, backcountry lodge, anyone that uses a UHF radio uh, frequencies in that zone, I'll program in and have, um, as well as I have like a three-foot antenna that can reach about 30 miles line of sight. Um, and we've I've used them up here in BC quite often and have been there for rescues to help people with them. The, those radios can be unbelievably good they're much better than any motorola you know family radio service the bca those are those are good for communicating within a party but they they don't work to communicate to the outside world so i use uhf vhf radios for that source and then the last point is i always have an in reach with me um they're the slowest in terms of rescue you know it could take three four hours for them to mobilize and get to you but they're the most reliable in that you are guaranteed to get a ping out to the world that you're in need of help. Um, and in reach, I like in particular because you can also text people. So, you know, if I'm in that place where I'm not getting radio service, but I know some like really key guys that are in that zone that I'm like, Hey dude, we are here. We need help. So like, if they're mobilizing sheriffs and whatnot and rescue services, I also can mobilize very experienced friends to come help me. So those are my three main levels of communication to the outside world for safety. Um, the rest of the safety equipment I carry is very standard ski mountaineering stuff, ropes, first aid kits, um, you know, harnesses, um, uh, bivy sack, all these kind of things that most people should have in the backcountry, especially on bigger, deeper lines. Well, hey, man, I, I think this project is a very cool thing uh, and quite the undertaking. I, it's been really fun to uh, get to, you know, just converse a bit about it and, and hear how it's going and kind of the vision and the, the sense of the trajectory for this adventure. But uh, yeah, this is going to be a very fun one to follow along. And uh, so let's see, you're talking about maybe you may be getting up on another one tomorrow. Yeah, potential. Um, if the weather window stays good, um, could be Monday as well from what I'm seeing. But tomorrow's got a window and um, I feel like I can, you know, I could do 7,000 uh, grand of climbing and freaking 11 hours and hopefully recover one day and go do a next one. I mean... If I gotta, uh, if I'm going to do some of these lines at the end of the season that I want to do, I got to be pretty hard man right now and get trained and ready for it. So might as well just keep pushing. Well, keep pushing and we'll keep watching and rooting for you. Best of luck with this. Obviously, a lot of things need to break the, the right way. And so we 
we hope you do catch some breaks and uh, wish you good health in all of this. Appreciate you taking the time today as you uh, as you go figure out the next one. Awesome. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate it. It's truly been like the amount of community support that I've been getting has been pretty overwhelming. Um, I, I'm, it's really fun to share this process and uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. And I feel like no matter whether I succeed or fail at doing the 50, I think it's going to be a rad adventure. And I think uh, it'll be a cool media project. And I think it'll be something that is pretty fun for people to, to follow along. Yeah. Rad adventure for sure. Well, hey, Cody, always a pleasure to talk. We'll let you get back to uh, this prep, but uh, look forward to talking to you the next time. Sounds great. That's good talking to you, Jonathan. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Cody Townsend for the conversation. And be sure to follow Cody's most excellent adventure on Instagram. His handle is at Cody Townsend. And you can also get more details on Instagram at the handle at the.50.project. And then there is, of course, the actual videos of each of these 50 lines. And for that, you can head over to YouTube and subscribe to Cody's channel, which is very appropriately named Cody Townsend. Thanks also to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And don't forget to join us at Western Colorado University in Gunnison, Colorado, on February 28th at 6 p.m. for a live interview and Q&A that I will be doing with the remarkable explorer, adventurer, expedition guide, and climate educator, Eric Larson. Thanks for listening, and thank you in advance for taking just 30 seconds to leave us a rating and or some feedback on the show in iTunes. We would really appreciate that since we know that many thousands of you are out there listening to these episodes each time they drop, and yet a lot of you have yet to leave us a nice little rating or review. So please do that now, and we will continue to bring on great guests like Cody and the best-to-ever-do-it rock star that we are going to have on the show next week. So there's a little teaser for you. Um, Thanks again, everybody, and take good care out there.